Robinson Crusoe had been shipwrecked. He was all alone in a desert island, and he was very miserable. He went to bed, and he was afflicted with a fever, and the fever lasted a long time, and he had no one to help him, not even anyone to bring a drink of cold water. He was ready to die. He was accustomed to sin and all the vices of an evil sailor, but his hard kiss caused him to think. Opening a Bible that he found in his sea chest, he stumbled upon this passage. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. That night he prayed for the first time in his life, and ever after that. He had a hope in God. Those were the words written by C.H. Spurgeon. Observing that when conditions are miserable and you feel alone, there is hope to be had, had from God by means of prayer. How real! And how applicable that observation is to us in these days of uh, lockdown, social isolation. There are many things that we cannot do, but we can have hope in God. A hope that comes to us from God and which encourages us to look to God and to lean on him in prayer. So, how are we to pray when conditions are miserable? And for that matter, when conditions are fine. Jesus' disciples had been with him for some time. They had seen his power at, at work and miracles that he wrought. They'd heard him preaching to uh, the people in, in various locations and settings. They'd also known him to withdraw from public view in order to pray. So what, what struck these men? What gripped them? What interested them? Well, Listen to the request recorded by Luke in his Gospel, chapter 11 and verse 1. Lord, teach us to pray. Isn't that interesting? Not, Lord, teach us how to cause miracles to happen. Lord, Teaches, teaches how to, to preach to the multitudes? No, no, no. Lord, teach us to pray. And he did. Luke records the words of our Lord. But we're more uh, aware, I'm sure, and acquainted with the words recorded by Matthew in that which we call the Lord's Prayer. 
In reality, it's, it's not the Lord's Prayer. It's the disciples' prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Is that prayer recorded for us in John's Gospel, chapter 17? Here in this sixth chapter of Matthew, from verse 9 through verse 13, here is what, what I call the Savior's Seminar on Prayer. It's his answer to the disciples as they want to learn to be prayers. And this is, this is what I want to look at with you for our, for our mutual encouragement, for our edification, so that like Robinson Crusoe of old, we too may have hope in God. I want to look primarily at the, 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 the setting of the seminar or the preface to this lesson on prayer. That is the words that you find from verse 5 through verse 8. If you have a Bible available, grab it, get hold of it. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel. I'm reading from verse 5 through verse 8, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And Jesus said, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Consider with me the distinction arising from prayer and then the dangers associated with prayer and finally the directions appointed for prayer. The distinction arising from prayer. Verse 5. Jesus says, and when you pray. What is our Lord doing here? Well, remember that this teaching forms part of that message given on the mount. Matthew records it from chapter 5 of his gospel right through to the end of chapter 7. It forms one of the, the five blocks of teaching which Matthew includes in his gospel. Each block of teaching has a dominant theme and concludes with these words, when Jesus had finished these sayings. And so here in this block of teaching, Jesus gives us the description of a follower of Christ and then he gives to us the disciplines of a follower of Christ. 
And it is there that we find the early emphasis on prayer in the sixth chapter. Now, notice again those early words. And when you pray, not if you pray, but when. Jesus, as it were, takes it for granted that those who follow him will follow his example and they will pray. And why is that? Because prayer is the first fruit of saving grace. It's the first fruit, as it were, of God-given faith in the heart. It's proof of our regeneration, of that new life which we have received in Christ. It is the, the cry of the newborn babe in Christ alone. Because what did the Scriptures tell us? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There it is. Call upon him. Prayer. And again, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Prayer, we might say, is the, the Christian's first breath. So prayer, spirit-born prayer, makes a distinction. A distinction between true and false followers of Jesus. You remember Saul of Tarsus. Saul of, of Tarsus, uh, the bounty hunter. There, there he was, riding around in his chariot, arresting those who were believers in Christ Jesus. But then God came to him. God put him on the ground. God caused the blindness to descend. Until God came to Ananias of old and says to Ananias, Go, go to this man, Saul of Tarsus. And Ananias knew the reputation of this man, this bounty hunter. How would he know there's been a distinction made? How does he know a difference has been made in this man? He goes. And what's recorded? What does he find Saul doing? Behold, he prays. Truly calling upon the name of the Lord. That's what marked him out. Paul, the apostle. Right from the beginning, a man of prayer. And so this is the distinction that prayer makes. And we know this, don't we? We who are the followers of Christ, even though weakly and with great frailty and, and other times with, 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 with coldness or indifference, we, we, we pray. But ungodly people are without God. And without hope. They, they wouldn't think of praying. And that's why we pray for them, don't we? We pray for people who won't pray for themselves, that they will become praying people. They will become the Lord's people, followers of Christ. The danger, the, the, the distinction here that arises from 
this discipline of prayer when you pray. But then let me take you on through verses 5 through 7 with, with the dangers associated with prayer. Isn't it interesting that, that in this teaching that Jesus gives, he, he, he brings out the negatives as well as the positives. He, he, he points out the dangers before the delights. And he illustrates the dangers by drawing our attention to, to two groups of people and their, their understanding of prayer and their practice in prayer. In verse 5, he speaks about the, the hypocrites, that is, the Pharisees. And then in verse 7, he talks about the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Well, what, what warning signs are, are brought out in looking at these two groups? Well, let me put it this way. Why? pray or what is what is our approach to god in prayer well jesus speaks about these hypocrites these pharisees and he says well they they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others that's why they're praying they're praying that others might see, that they might impress others by their, their piety and by their, their godliness. And what a glorious example we get of this from, from Luke in chapter 18. That story of the Pharisee and the tax collector going to pray. Um, and while that, that, that story significantly deals with justification, the picture of each man at prayer is instructive. There is the Pharisee. How does he pray? What does he pray? Well, I'm going over to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 18. Turn with me in your Bible to that 18th chapter. Luke 18. Here it is. This, this Pharisee and tax collector. Two men. I'm reading from verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. That's the Pharisee at prayer. Here he comes to pray. And so as Jesus would tell us there in Matthew 6, here is this Pharisee standing as far forward as possible in the most prominent place so that everyone there could, could see him. He wanted to be seen. He wanted to be known publicly for being a righteous, prayerful man. But look at his prayer. There's no adoration. There's no confession. There's no supplication. No, no. Why he prays poisons his prayer. 
his approach, his emphasis, you see, is on himself rather than on the one before whom true prayer is made. He is out to impress. Prayer has become the parade ground on which he, 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 he demonstrates his pride. Look at his thanksgiving. What does he thank God for? Not for his mercy, not for his grace, not for his protection, not for God's provision for him. But he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, especially that tax collector. So why do we pray? Is it to, to show off our spirituality? Or is it to seek God in times of need in order that he would be glorified? You know, do we display our, our pride or our paucity of spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit, said our Lord. When we, when we come to God, is, is, it, is it with haughtiness or humility? You know, the story is told of a, a certain great preacher who once described an ornate and eloquent prayer that had been offered in a rather prestigious Boston church. These were his comments, and I quote, The most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. End of quote. Do you get it? The most eloquent prayer ever offered, not to God, but to the audience. A man out to impress. I find it very interesting how verse 11 begins there in Luke's Gospel. The Pharisee standing by himself. The implication was no one else was there. Not even God. He was not standing before God. Well, what of the tax collector? We're told he would not even lift his eyes to heaven. And why not? He knew God. He knew the holiness of God. He knew the righteousness of God. He knew something of the fear of the Lord. And he knew the state of his own heart. What do we see when we look at this man? There's humility, there's honesty, there's urgency, there's fervency, there's reverence. He is he's driven to prayer because of the sense of his own depravity. The sense of his own sin weighs him down. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. A classic prayer. A beautiful prayer. A prayer received in heaven. So why do we pray? How do we approach God in our prayer time? The first danger comes from the 
the why. Why we pray. Are we trying to manipulate God? Are we trying to, to coerce God? Are we humbly coming for help? Because it's requiring us. When we require help and when we're asking for help, that glorifies God. The second danger here is associated with the how. How we pray. Verse 7 of Matthew 6. How do the Gentiles pray? Well, here the text tells us, and using the the, the uh, uh, ESV, they heap up empty phrases, and they're known for their many words. So what are illustrations can we give? Are there examples here of what Jesus is getting at? Well, I think there is. You remember that, that great story that's told in First Kings chapter 18, the, the prophets of Baal, there they went. And what are we told? From morning to noon, they were crying out and shouting out and praying, Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. But nobody answered. Many words. Many words. But no response. Or you can come to the New Testament. Acts chapter 19, verse 34. The apostles in Ephesus. And the, the, the city's in an uproar. And we're told that for two hours the people in the city were crying out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours, word after word, term after term, cry after cry, shout after shout. Repetition. Repetition. And in our own day, you've all seen it, I'm sure, the the prayer wheels, the Tibetans, sadly, the rosary of our Roman Catholic friends. But our Lord is not only drawing attention here to vain repetition, because the, the, the term that Matthew employs here points to mindless words. These Gentiles, with all their praying, were praying without thinking. Thoughtless words. That's why the, the NIV translates the term babbling, just like a babbling brook, just making a noise. Because the point is, my friends, true prayer involves the mind. It requires thought. Read our Lord's Prayer in John 17. Study the Apostles' prayers in his letter, and you'll see the reasoning. You'll see the, 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 the quality, the thought that went into those prayers. The fact is, how we pray reflects our understanding of the one to whom we are praying. Is God indifferent to us? Is God far from us? Is he too busy for us? Does he, does, does he care for us? Do we have to make a lot of noise? Do we have to make a lot of reasoning? Do we have to make a lot of crying? Do we have to repeat word after word after word to awaken him, to cause him to stop and think about us? What's our view of God? That's the thing. What's our understanding of God? 
I think it was the scholar Richard Pratt, Professor Richard Pratt, who wrote a little book called Praying With Your Eyes Open, a wonderful book on prayer. Praying with your eyes open to who this one is before we come and call upon. What is he like? You see, once again, our theology affects our devotion. Are we aware that when we come, we're coming to a God of endless love, depth of mercy, amazing grace? Do we approach him? Do we come to him? Do we speak with him knowing that, as we will see in the prayer itself, he is our Father who is in heaven. And thus we come to a heavenly Father as his beloved adopted children. Friends, prayers are not measured by the number of words or by their length but by their faith and by their humility and by their passion. And so this tax collector, his prayer was so short, so brief, and yet so blessed. How significant. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Oh, how eloquent. And it was heard, heard by our Father, in heaven. The distinction arising from prayer, the dangers associated with prayer, and thus finally and thirdly, the directions appointed for prayer. And you get that in verse 6 and 8. Jesus speaks to us here about three things. He talks to us here about having a place. He says, going into your room. Well, What's behind this direction? Well, I think quite simply our Lord is pointing to the, the need that there must be a time where we pray intentionally. That there is a, there is a time, there is a period, there is a, a place that we can go to where there's some privacy to think on him and come to him. That, that we, we actually do make a time and a habit of private prayer somewhere where we are shut up to our Father in heaven. But then he speaks about a promise, and that is the unseen Father will demonstrate his awareness, his awareness of us and his attention to us by rewarding us. Verse 6, that he will hear us, that he will answer us. That's the proof of his hearing of his, us. By prayer, the unseen God shows himself by his reward of grace to those who submit themselves in obedience to the life of grace. Remember there in Hebrews 11, faith. Believing that God exists. He is there. And he is not silent. He is there. And he rewards those who diligently seek him. He's a God who rewards us. How amazing is that? Not only hears, but blesses us. 
This is the promise when we come. He'll reward us. And then thirdly, there's a perception. You get that in verse 8, the amazing words. Your Father knows what you need. Because He sees us. Oh, beloved, He is aware of our needs. He knows our hurts. He knows our desires. He's conscious of our condition. He understands where we're at. So that when we come to pray, it's not to inform an ignorant God or try to manipulate or negotiate with some indifferent God. No, no. He is our Father and He knows and He knows what's best for us. And therefore we can ask of Him and we can ask with assurance, an assurance which dismisses our fears and our worries and our anxieties. Because what did... what did Matthew record a little later on in this sixth chapter. What does he say to us? Again, the words of our Lord. I'm going to Matthew 6, verse 31 through 33. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 31. Listen to these words. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So, what are we doing when we pray? We are coming into the presence of the Lord, who is our heavenly Father. We're coming reverently to worship the Lord who is our Redeemer. And we come to Him and He draws near to us in unfailing, unceasing love to rescue us, to restore us, so that we might rejoice and have hope in Him. That we, like Robinson Crusoe, might learn what it is to pray, and thus have hope, hope in God. And like Joseph Scriven, know that our Heavenly Father is also our closest and dearest friend. Because what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Well, may God encourage your hearts and may we together learn what it is to lean on him.